Hello, dreamers, and welcome to episode 252. Before we get started, I have a few notes about the show. This is an independent ad free podcast, which means I depend on the listeners to help me keep this show going. And there are a few ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. That helps to give us more visibility so new listeners can find us. You can follow the show on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Like, comment, share, tweet, retweet, all that good stuff. And if you would like to go above and beyond and you need more content to listen to, you can become a subscriber on Patreon. Starting at just $1 a month, you will gain access to dozens of exclusive episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. If a subscription isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. Links to everything can be found in the show notes. This week, I'd like to thank Heather S., Sam G., Jen M., Melissa G., Katie T., Rich M., Lynn N., Joe H., Sarah O., and Nika P. for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge to the next tier, or going annual. Your support is really appreciated, and I seriously cannot thank you enough. Before we get to today's episode, I wanted to tell you all a little something that's going on in my personal life. In the Facebook group sometime earlier in the week, I posted that I was working on figuring out what case I was going to get into next, and I mentioned possibly telling you about an incident that I had with my husband, my estranged husband. He's not my ex-husband yet. We're getting there. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Let me first say that I want you all to know that I'm doing very well at the moment. But this hadn't really been the case for most of 2020, pretty much all of 2021, and the early part of 2022. It was still a little bit touch and go for me. Most of you know that I moved from California to Nevada about a week or so, a little more than a week before the COVID quarantine began. And I was living alone for the first time ever in my life. I was already not in a very good headspace to begin with, so COVID just kind of passed me by because I was isolated anyway. And I struggled a lot for the first nearly two years that I was here in Nevada. I honestly thought at times that I wasn't going to survive this. But you know, it was thinking about my daughter and really wanting to see her live out her life for as long as possible really kept me from drowning. At the end of 2021, I took a job outside the home, working as a private childcare provider. I was recommended to this family by a coworker of the mom, whose children I had taken care of from 2013 through 2016. And she gave me a heads up. She said, hey, I have a coworker that's really in need of a babysitter. I gave her your phone number because you said you might be looking for work. I was like, okay, just tell her to give me a call, whatever. And when the call did come in, I almost didn't answer the phone. She called first and then she texted. But I did. When we set up an appointment to meet with each other, I almost didn't go, but I did. When they offered me the job, I almost didn't take it, but I did. 
It was like each step of the way I battled with myself in my own head. I kept making excuse after excuse as to why I shouldn't accept that job. What if this baby is a whiny, bratty terror? What if the parents are controlling, overbearing helicopter parents who spend their whole day staring at me through their nanny cam phone apps? They live too far away from me. I don't have the time because of the podcast. When all of this stuff, I was basically just BSing myself. So I went, we met, we clicked, and I took the job. And thank goodness I did because it really marked a turning point for me, at least the beginning of a turning point. It turns out that the mom of this toddler and I have a lot more in common than I ever really could have imagined. On the surface, it wouldn't seem like it. But as the weeks and months went along and we got to know each other better, we started to see just how much we related to one another when it came to certain things and aspects in our life experiences. And soon, I made my very first friend in the state of Nevada. While I felt appreciated at some of the jobs that I've had in the past, not so much in others, this really is one of the very few times that I've not only felt appreciated, but that I was making a real and tangible impact on the development of their child. As parents, we know that sometimes it takes new and different people, places, things, and experiences to bring about change, development, and growth in our children. And I by no means am any kind of toddler whisperer, but, you know, I just had different expectations of an 18-month-old than they did as first-time parents. And they couldn't be more pleased with the changes and growth that they've seen in their daughter over the last 14 months or so since she's been in my care. It's become close to a full-time job for me. And as much as they've appreciated the impact that I've had on their lives, they've certainly had one on my life as well. One of the things that I've been able to do, one of the things that I've been inspired to do was to seek help. Working for this family pulled me out of my apartment. Becoming friends with a mom pulled me out of my isolation. Now, don't get carried away. I still like my isolation, but I guess I can call it my me time instead. I started seeing a therapist late last year. I wasn't sure what to expect or if it would help. At this point, I think it's helping. But what I do know is I look forward to it each week. It pulls me out from getting into my own head. And one of the things my therapist suggested was to start going to AA meetings. I was hesitant at first, but I finally bit the bullet and went. And since then, I've been going to three meetings a week. It pulls me out of my comfort zone. I also participate in weekly Zoom group therapy sessions. It helps, and I don't have to go anywhere. All of this, the therapy, the meetings, the babysitting, it puts me into a little bit of a time crunch when it comes to putting together the weekly episodes, but it can be done because I've been doing it. I can manage my time. I can keep doing this. Doing this podcast is my favorite thing ever, and I intend to keep doing it until I can't. Now, what has held me up these last two weeks. It has to do with my husband. And I alluded to it in the Facebook group. (sighs) 
All this time since we moved to Nevada, he's had it in his mind, my husband, has had it in his mind that he's some kind of professional poker player. Like he was seriously actually aspiring to try to play at that elite level. Sometime in 2021, he quit working full time in order to devote more time to playing poker. And he took up ride sharing as a way of being able to work so that he could do it when he felt like it. You can already see why our relationship wasn't going to work out, right? By 2022, my husband was drowning. While I was working on picking up the pieces of my life and working on healing, he was falling apart. And by the end of last year, he had borrowed and taken a little more than $17,000 from me. He cashed out his 401k and didn't give me half of that that was rightfully mine. He took most of our 2022 tax return. And just this past October, I saved his car from being repossessed. So backing up a little bit, my husband had gotten into some kind of fender bender in his own car, I want to say in late August, and it rendered his vehicle unable to carry passengers. It was something about this accident that caused this grinding noise to happen whenever anyone sat in the back seat. So he started using my car to do the ride sharing. And this went on until October when he took a job driving a taxi. It still had the flexibility for him to work when he wanted, as long as he was doing, I think it was 40 or 48 hours a week minimum. And you know, we live in a town with a very busy nightlife, right? This is Vegas. Well, Henderson is Vegas adjacent. But he was insisting on working Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, sometimes even later, like 12 to 5, 12 to 6. And he absolutely refused to work on Sundays. He won't work on holidays. He wouldn't work at night. So eventually, he's only doing about six hours a day, Monday through Friday. And he's still hung up on this poker thing. Eventually, within just about two months, the cab company knocked him down to part time because he wasn't fulfilling his weekly obligation. He admitted to me that he spent all of his time gambling in casinos and online which is why he had to go part-time. And even when he was full-time, if he was even ever meeting that obligation, he wasn't earning enough anyway to begin to even try and catch up with all of his bills, which were backing up like really bad. And he needed to pay me back, of course, and that's always the last of his priorities. So at the beginning of the year, like literally the first week of January, he was just in a really terrible way. His bank account was hundreds of dollars in the negative. He was placing huge bets trying to win big, and it wasn't working, of course. I finally said to him, are you ready to admit to yourself that you're a compulsive gambler and your life has become unmanageable, and do you want to attend a Gambler's Anonymous meeting? I offered to go with him, and he actually agreed to go. So we've been to three meetings, and. As far as I know, and I believe him when he says he hasn't gambled in probably about six weeks now, with his gambling somewhat under control, he decided that in order to start, you know, to regroup and recouping his losses and all that, he wanted to go back to ride sharing while he would try to possibly look for a regular job. 
but this involved borrowing my car once again. Now, I loved my car. I bought it right when we moved here, just before quarantine. It's like my COVID car. All it was was a Hyundai Sonata. It was 10 years old. Nothing fancy. It was the basic model, but it was big, spacious, comfortable. And honestly, I would have been happy if it was the last car I ever owned before my daughter has to start driving me around when I get too old. Now, I try to aspire to lesser levels of pettiness, but I hate my husband's car. It's small. He doesn't take good care of it. He constantly eats and spills in it. And it pretty much doubles as his laundry hamper and a storage place for his golf clubs. Yeah, on top of all the douchey things that he does, he's also a golfer. But when he borrows my car, I'm stuck driving his. I was willing to make that sacrifice to help him while he worked on his compulsive gambling and looked for another job. Well, on Monday, February 13th, he was doing his ride sharing at night and he struck a median. Luckily, there were no passengers in the car, but the airbag deployed. And in his defense, and I don't really like defending him, if you ever driven around Henderson and Vegas, they are not good at where they place medians in this town. If they had medians like this in California, people would be hitting them all the time. So I understand I've hit medians here, but not quite as hard apparently as he did. So the airbag deployed and whatever underneath the car got damaged, there was transmission fluid leaking and the car just stopped running. Um, at the time that I was writing this, I hadn't known whether or not the car was a total loss. Um, but I did find out a week later, earlier this week on Monday, that it was completely totaled. I'm not a car person, but I do tend to grow attached to some of the ones that I've had. It's more about the time that I got the car and what was going on in my life while I had it. Like, for example, when I got pregnant, I was driving around in a 1992 Honda Civic that I just loved. I loved it before I was pregnant. I brought my daughter home in it. So it was really sad when it was time to part ways with it because it was just falling apart. So this Hyundai, it was like I found it at just the right time. Like it was meant for me. It was meant to be mine. And I had never had a Hyundai before. Because of some of the impulsive and bad decisions my husband made as we were nearing the end of our marriage, I ended up without a car. Long story short, when he was given a company vehicle at the really great job that he used to have in California, he gave my daughter his car. She didn't like it, so I traded cars with her. So when he decided to drop his entire life in California and move back to his mommy's house in Nevada, he had to turn in his company vehicle, he quit his job, he took back his car, and he left. So I was left with no car, and it was one of the first things I needed to buy when I got to Nevada. It was just the right price. It was the class size that I wanted. It was in good condition. It was comfortable, spacious, and it was exactly what I wanted to get me back and forth to California whenever I felt like going. And I managed to get it literally days before quarantine, and I felt so grateful and fortunate to have it. So if I seem petty because I'm sad about it being totaled now, and I'm stuck driving around in David's piece of shit, that's the reason why. It just meant a lot to me to have it. Normally, 
I'd be very, very angry at my husband over something like this. He has these tendencies to be clumsy, reckless, selfish, thoughtless, self-centered, slobbish, and lazy. And there's things that you really can't be in a marriage, at least not in a marriage with me. He's shaped up for a lot of years to make me happy, but ultimately that's only going to last for so long. Nobody is going to be happy if they aren't able to be their authentic self. Luckily for him, he has a divorced mother who is exactly like him, so the two of them can go and live lazily, selfishly, slobbishly, and joblessly ever after. But I didn't react angrily. I got frustrated a day or two following the accident because the insurance was kind of dragging their feet, but I didn't get mad. I didn't lose it. I didn't blow my top. I didn't go off. I just told him that I'm disappointed and sad, and I cried over the car. Prior to him borrowing my car on a regular basis over the last month or so to try to catch up on his finances, I had been putting some distance and space between he and I because of me trying to work on me. He wasn't taking my car home with him, so he would come over, borrow it every day. We'd trade cars, and we'd trade back when he was done. And I'm thinking that he was doing that. I'm pretty sure it was because he wasn't telling his mom what he was doing for work, that he wasn't working for the taxi company anymore, and he was borrowing my car. So it was causing me to have to see him and interact with him more than I really prefer to while I'm in this process of healing. But anyway, I am doing well. I've been doing lots of journaling. I'm not as isolated as I had been for the first two and a half years that I was living in Nevada. I am still as happy and motivated to be doing this podcast as ever, if not more so. And I promise you, honestly, these are the things that kept me going. You listening, this show, being able to have something to focus on. If I didn't have this, I, there were times when I didn't think that I would be able to go on. If it wasn't for my daughter, my dogs, my podcast, and all of you who are still here with me. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for all of your love and all of your support over the five and a half years that we've been at this. All right, let's get to today's case. And I just have a warning for you. There is an incident involving animal cruelty in this first part of the story. If you would like to skip it, when we get to that point, I will give you a warning and a moment to get your device so that you can fast forward past it. All right, let's finally get started with this week's episode. Our story today takes place in Northern California. Away from the coast, up towards the north, you'll find the lakeside community of Nice, California, named after the French city. Nice is located on the northern shore of Clear Lake and is about two hours northwest of Sacramento. It is part of California's sprawling wine country. And in a TV show that I watched about this case, it referred to Nice as a village. The lake is beautiful. It's surrounded by mountains. And back when our story took place in 1999, 
The population hovered around 2,500, and it's not much different today with the population being only around 2,400 residents. Life in Nice and on Clear Lake is very relaxing and laid back. It's picturesque, it's quiet, it's peaceful. It's the perfect place to retire to. Which is exactly where Don and Marianne DeVardo ended up when they retired. They had a lovely house right on a beautiful inlet on Clear Lake. And for the most part, their days are what you would expect for an older couple. It's very simple. It's very routine. It's really what we work our whole lives to achieve. And in 1999, husband Don, a World War II Army veteran, he was 76 years old and his wife Marianne was 69. And by all accounts, the couple were just two regular, average, simple, well-liked retirees who found pleasure in the very simplest of things in life. Getting up in the morning, having their coffee, getting the newspaper, and sitting down and enjoying a beautiful view of the lake from their deck. One of Don's favorite pastimes in retirement was woodworking. He could make anything from beautiful pieces of furniture to birdhouses. His wife, Marianne, was also creative in her own right. She was involved with her community, with her church, and she enjoyed socializing with her friends. And most of the time, if you saw one of the DeVardos, you would see both of them, as they usually went everywhere together. They'd always had a very close and loving marriage, and their bond only grew stronger with each passing year. The DeVardos raised three children. Their eldest is Janet. At the time that the story took place, she was 50 years old. She was an elementary school math teacher and had a personality that was very similar to her mom's. She was bright, happy, smart, kind, and warm. She visited her parents pretty frequently whenever she had a chance. She lived down in Southern California. She was married, but the couple did not have any children. Her husband, Jean, had a very... A much different personality than Janet. He was not as bright and cheery as his wife was. In fact, he was described as being somewhat of a grouch. The DeVardos didn't really care for him all that much. They had difficulties getting along, but you know, it's like one of those situations where they just kind of tolerate it for the sake of their daughter and sister. And when Janet and Jean did visit, they would normally just try to do everything they could to stay busy to do outdoor activities, to go fishing, that sort of thing, just to try and make the best of the situation and stay distracted to avoid any kind of awkwardness. The DeVardo's middle son is Jimmy. He's the one that lived the closest to his parents in the San Francisco Bay Area. So he's usually the one who visited the lake house the most. Of the siblings, Jimmy was apparently the largest one in stature, and because he's so tall and a relatively large man, he can seem somewhat imposing, but once people got to know him and to talk to him, they would find that, yeah, he's generally a very gentle and quiet person. Jimmy was pretty busy. He worked in the entertainment industry, so he really enjoyed when he had some free time to come to his parents' house to unwind and to get away from having to be 
living and working in, in such a big city. Jimmy saw his parents more frequently than his other two siblings, and he enjoyed a very close and loving relationship with them. The DeVardo's youngest child was their son, Jeffrey. At the time that this story took place, back in 1999, he was 43 years old, and he had established his career and his home in Southern California. He had landed a really great job in management with Boeing in the city of Long Beach. He was making good money, and he lived in the city of Valencia, where he had a home on some very expensive horse property, and Valencia is located north of downtown Los Angeles. But he's got that really good paying job down in Long Beach. Even though it was quite a commute each day, it was worth it. So there was an occasion where the whole DeVardo family, all the children and their spouses, got together to come and celebrate Don and Marianne's wedding anniversary. The family gatherings at the lake house were relatively common. They, that was like the place everybody gathered for all of the big holidays and events and whatnot. And the DeVardo's three grown children would always come with their own families. But at this particular anniversary celebration, their youngest son, Jeffrey, had shown up with someone that the family hadn't met before, which was odd because Jeffrey had been married since 1980 and they had a daughter together. And this person that he showed up with wasn't his wife, at least not the wife that they'd known all those years. Her name was Molly, and she was definitely an impressive woman, and she was impressively beautiful. She was an experienced and avid horseback rider. She was very refined and cultured and sophisticated. She was very much into the finer things in life, and Jeffrey was doing everything that he could to make sure that his wife had everything her heart desired. He completely and totally indulged and catered to her every whim. They had that big, beautiful house on that horse property in Valencia. They drive nice cars. So from the outside looking in, this couple appeared to have it all. When it came to Jeffrey's older sister, Janet, and her marriage to Jean, like I said, the family was already not feeling that great about him. He was just really negative all the time and gave off all the vibes that matched that. And so when they showed up for the anniversary party, it was pretty clear to everyone else that Janet and Jean were not getting along. He just had a really bad temper and he really didn't make that much of an effort to try and hide it, even in front of Janet's entire family. Jean was rude to Janet at the dinner table, and all anyone could do was just sit there and bite their tongues. And they couldn't help but think, if this is what he's like around the family, imagine what he's like when no one is watching. It really got the family to start becoming concerned about Janet's well-being. What if Jean lost it one day and then took it all out on her? Before long, Janet and Jean had gone into another area of the house to argue, but you know everybody could hear them. After all, it wasn't the first time and it probably wouldn't be the last. The family did try to stay out of it and let Janet handle her marriage on her own. None of them would tell her that she should leave him because... They knew that she hadn't reached that point yet where she was willing to walk away from him just yet. 
They had a lot of years invested, so the family was just going to have to stand by and wait and hope that either things got better or Janet finally had had enough and decides to walk away. And the way things were going between Janet and Jean, it really killed the festive mood at what should have otherwise been a fun and happy anniversary party. It wasn't too long after that celebration that Janet finally had had enough. She was ready to get out of that toxic marriage and she told Jean that she wanted a divorce and that he needed to pack his stuff and get out of the house. And while Jean may have seemed to have been compliant at first and he went ahead and packed up his stuff and left, both Janet and her family knew him well enough to know that he might not walk away all that easily. So they may have to steal themselves for a battle. The good thing was Janet wasn't wavering. She was standing her ground this time and she had made it pretty clear that she was finished with being mistreated by him and no longer wanted to continue to be in this unhappy marriage. In fact, because they didn't have any children together, it was even more reason for them to make this clean break. She didn't even want him contacting her anymore. Well, it turned out that Jean was not going to go as quietly as everyone had hoped. In fact, Jean was furious. And not only was he going to get mad, he was going to get even too. Now, dreamers, we are coming up to the incident in the story involving the animal cruelty that I mentioned. I'm going to give you a prompt in a few seconds to go ahead and fast forward 30 seconds in order to skip it. Get your devices, unlock them, open up your app, and go ahead and fast forward now. To get back at Janet, Jean grabbed an axe and killed her two little dogs with it. Janet was horrified, as were the members of her family, when she told them what Jean had done. I mean, who does that, right? How many cases have we heard of where somebody murders somebody, but they spare the dog, they let the dog out to run away, or they close the dog into another room? And I realize that there are times when people are like, yeah, that the dog isn't as important as the human life. And while that may be the case, there's no taking away from the fact that no matter what happens in a story, the family dog is always, always innocent and loyal. And in many instances would give their lives to save ours, no matter how badly they're mistreated. They're just loyal. So yes, it is for the best that Gene did what he did to the dogs and not to his wife. But there is just something about that that makes this guy like next level evil. Anyone who is capable of doing what he did is just beyond the scope of what a normal person would do. Most people aren't even capable of thinking about doing what he did. It's just a line that we don't cross, and it even hurt my heart to speak those words if you did listen to it. So Gene was arrested and charged with animal cruelty, and he got a chance to think about his life choices in the county jail, so for the time being, Janet and her family could relax. So yeah, if Gene had been acting violent in the hopes that that would somehow freak Janet out enough for her to reconsider her decision to end the relationship, I'm pretty sure doing what he did to her dogs only affirmed for her that she was lucky she got out when she did and that she got out with her life. 
that anniversary dinner was going to be the last time Jean would be welcome to any DeVardo family gathering. None of them wanted to have anything to do with him anymore. In the end, Jean ended up being sentenced to a mental health institution. But, you know, he wouldn't be there forever. In the meantime, Janet worked on trying to get her life back together and to do what she could to move on from the abusive marriage that she had stayed in for much longer than she really should have. And while the family was just about to settle back into their normal everyday lives following that trouble between Janet and Jean, Don and Marianne's youngest son, Jeffrey, was kind of running into some troubles of his own. So we know that Jeffrey showed up at his parents' anniversary celebration with a new wife that nobody seemed to have known about because he had been married to someone else for a lot of years. And it was kind of weird that he all of a sudden showed up with a different wife seemingly out of the blue. So I take this to mean that none of his family had any idea that Jeffrey was having any kind of troubles in his first marriage. They hadn't known that there was any problems, much less that they were going to get a divorce. Jeffrey never mentioned seeing anybody new, again, much less getting married for a second time. He just kind of sprung it on everybody. I mean, when I got married in 2006, I didn't tell anyone, but it was a spontaneous thing that I did, but I hadn't been married before. So in one sense, I can see someone wanting to do something like that on a whim, but in this situation, Jeffrey's family didn't even know that he was having any kind of discord in his first marriage. So coming around with Molly took everybody by surprise. Well, it turned out that Molly, as excessively lovely and cultured as she was, her taste for the finer things in life was just as excessive, if not more so. And whatever Molly wanted, Molly got. And it was up to Jeffrey to do the getting. Whatever it took, he had to make sure that he kept Molly happy. After all, this guy's got a great, well-paying job at Boeing, right? Well, anyway, that being said, there's this equestrian center in the city of Valencia. And I went Googling around to look at these equestrian centers. And there were a couple of them. And I did find one where several of the Google reviews referred to the trainer as Molly. And she got some good reviews. I can't confirm that if it's the same Molly or not. After all, this was more than two decades ago. But anyway, I'm not quite sure, but I believe Molly, in the case that we're talking about, worked at the equestrian center. And she had apparently been house shopping in the area when she found this beautiful Mediterranean-style home that she just had to have. And Jeffrey, of course, had to get it because Molly gets what Molly wants. The problem was is that this house was way, way, way out of range in terms of what Jeffrey could afford, and he knew it. When he told his family he was buying that house, they knew it too, and they were kind of like, um, are you sure you can afford that? I mean, they knew that he had this decent job, right? But they knew him well enough to know that it appeared that this house was beyond his means. In spite of that, Jeffrey got the house for Molly anyway. And he quickly found himself drowning financially. But he certainly couldn't let Molly know that. 
And it was kind of sounding like there was a lot that Jeffrey was probably keeping from his new wife, beyond the fact that being married to her has sent him straight into the poorhouse. As time passed, things were not getting any better for Jeffrey. In fact, the pressure and the stress of trying to keep up with his mounting bills and keeping Molly happy was continuing to build. Eventually, Jeffrey had no choice but to turn to his mom and dad for help. They're the type of parents who were always willing to help out any of their children whenever they were in a jam. They were there for Janet as she navigated through that really tough breakup with Jean. And they wanted to be there for Jeffrey as well as he's running into difficulties of his own. And as their youngest, you know, he's the baby of the family and they always tend to get the special treatment. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm the only child, which technically makes me the oldest and the youngest. So I don't even know if any of this stuff applies. And I only have one kid. And yes, she is the baby and she is my favorite. But allegedly, the baby of the family gets spoiled. So when Jeffrey came asking for help, his parents ended up loaning him $30,000, much to the chagrin of his siblings, Janet and Jimmy. It annoyed them because their parents raised them to know better. If you don't have the money to get something, you don't get it. And if you really, really want it, then it would be worth saving for. And that's what you do. You save. They all pretty much knew before Jeffrey even bought the house that it was way out of his price range. Everybody knew it. But Jeffrey did it anyway, just to try and please Molly and to make her happy. And now their parents were being forced to dip into their retirement savings in order to bail him out. Janet and Jimmy were also kind of confused as to why their parents agreed to loan Jeffrey the money in the first place. After all, just like I had said, they raised their kids to be financially responsible. It was somewhat out of character for them to just loan that kind of money, especially to any one of them if they did something financially irresponsible. And while they tried to figure out why their parents were just so willing to loan Jeffrey such a large amount of money when they knew that he was getting into a mortgage that was beyond his means, they weren't really getting any straight answers from their parents, which was also kind of weird. In fact, their parents were being completely closed-lipped about it. And it's never really been like that for Don and Marianne to be so weird and secretive about things. So the fact that they were acting like this made Jimmy and Janet even more curious and concerned. They were like, what the heck is going on with mom and dad, right? Are they kind of losing it? You know, people start to get old. They do stuff they normally wouldn't do. It didn't seem like that was the case. They both seemed perfectly fine, fit, and sound of mind. So what was happening here? Janet and Jimmy were stumped. And they weren't going to let it go either. They were both so bothered by this, not just by this loan, but also the fact that their parents were being so strange, acting so strange about it. While they couldn't stop their parents from loaning the money to Jeffrey, they did insist that they at least make sure they, they get it in writing that this money is a loan. Have a document drawn up and make him sign it to make him accountable. And if for some reason they have to take legal action to get their money back, so be it. So to placate their kids, Don and Marianne went ahead and had Jeffrey sign a loan agreement just in case. 
This is kind of a dumbed down version of the financial transaction that took place between Jeffrey and his parents. As we start getting deeper into the court documents, there will be more specifics of how this $30,000 came about. They wrote Jeffrey a check for the money on November 24th, 1998. In the village of Nice, where the DeVardos lived, across the street they had a neighbor named Joseph Burke, who resided there with his wife. Normally, Joseph would see Don DeVardo working in his garage pretty much every day on any one of his woodworking projects. If for some reason Joseph didn't see Don out there, there would always be a reason for it, which he would usually know. The neighbors would let each other know if they were going on vacation, you know, for whatever reason, and to ask them to keep an eye on the house in case you're not seen there for a few days. The other neighbors won't be alarmed. They're aware that you're gone on a vacation or whatever. So the last day that Joseph Burke observed Don DeVardo working in his garage was on the morning of Wednesday, March 31st, 1999. Joseph and his wife had plans to be gone for the day. When they left, Joseph saw Don in the garage. The neighbors waved and Joseph and his wife left. When they arrived home that evening, Don wasn't in the garage. So when he went into his house, he called the DeVardo home but received no answer. The entire next day, Thursday, April 1st, passed without Joseph having observed Don out in his garage at all that day, which was unusual, but Joseph didn't become too concerned about it at that point. Perhaps he was sick and wasn't feeling up to doing much of his usual things. The next day, Friday, April 2nd, Joseph again did not see Don come out to the garage at any point that morning or in the early afternoon, so he decided to go over to the house to see what, if anything, was going on with the DeVardos. He rang their doorbell. He tried to make a cursory peek into the front window, but he really didn't notice anything out of the ordinary or suspicious, and the blinds were drawn, so he really couldn't see all that much from the outside. Even though Don hadn't said anything, Joseph just assumed that the DeVardos took a trip somewhere and had just forgotten to mention it, so he decided to let the weekend pass to see if he would hear from them then. But Saturday, Sunday, and Monday all went by, still without a word from either one of the DeVardos. He hadn't seen either one of them. Don had still yet to appear in his garage. So by the morning of Tuesday, April 6, 1999, it had been an entire week since Joseph had seen or heard from either one of the DeVardos. He went back over to the property and decided to do a full walk around the perimeter of their home. And in doing so, Joseph noticed that the gate, which led to their backyard and their deck, was standing open. Joseph knew that the DeVardos rarely use this gate because it would get stuck and it was hard to push it open and close it and they had to force it shut. And they really had no reason to use that side access gate anyway. So Joseph also noticed in his walk around the property that the light inside their garage was left on, which was also unusual. Don really only had the light on when he was out there in the garage. And around back, the sliding glass door that led from 
the inside of the house to the backyard deck, that door had curtains and those curtains that were pulled shut, he could see were moving because of a floor vent that was next to that sliding glass door was blowing air. Now these things, this light being on and the air conditioning or the heating being turned on with seemingly nobody home might not seem all that suspicious on the surface. But if you live in California, you know that there is and has been for many, many years an energy crunch. And when you leave your house, you leave as little electricity consuming things on as possible in order to keep your energy costs down. And I would even go so far as to say that the older people who are retired and on fixed incomes might really be sticklers for this. And I'm not saying that people in other states aren't energy conscious, but just being from the most populous state in the union with energy costs being so high, it kind of becomes something that's ingrained in you. Here in Nevada, there are times you just don't have a choice but to run your AC and your heat around the clock if you're home all the time and if you have pets. In California, it's practically unheard of. The dogs are just going to have to go outside and find the shade spot, right? Or you may leave a box fan on for them. That's what I used to do. We didn't have air conditioning when we lived in Huntington Beach. So I would leave the fan on and if they wanted to lay in front of it, they would have to figure that out, that that's where they could stay cool. So anyway, all of this is to say that Joseph just knew that something was wrong. He hadn't seen the DeVardos in a week. The back gate was standing open and the light and the air conditioning was on. There was definitely something wrong. Also, from all that Joseph could see from the outside, there did not appear to be any other lights on in the house. So he decided to finally go ahead and try the sliding glass door and he found it to be open. So he stepped inside and that is when he saw the body of Marianne DeVardo face down on the ground next to a chair that she appeared to have been seated in. Joseph immediately exited the home and told his wife, who was waiting for him out in front of the house, that he believed Marianne and Don might be dead and to hurry back and call 911. Sheriff's deputies arrived at the DeVardo home just after 12 p.m. on Tuesday, April 6th. They found Marianne's body on the floor of the living room. She had suffered some obvious trauma to the head. Dawn's body was found in the laundry room, which was situated in the hallway between the garage and the living room. In their report, investigators described his body as being up against the wall and almost in sort of an upside down position, which I really wasn't able to visualize in my head other than he must have just really been sort of twisted up into a weird position and propped up against the wall. One of the deputies tried to feel for a pulse on Marianne but found none. Her hair was blood soaked but it was hard to tell if it was dry or not and it wasn't immediately apparent how decomposed, if at all, their bodies were. Upon examining the upstairs area of the house, it appeared that the bedroom dresser and the closet had been ransacked and items had been tossed about the master bedroom. Items that might normally be taken in a burglary like electronics and jewelry were left untouched. And it was the impression of the officers at the scene that the manner in which the room had been ransacked appeared as if there really hadn't been any actual search for anything valuable. 
Janet and Jeffrey arrived at their parents' home the afternoon that the bodies were discovered. They were both told that there were two bodies inside the house and they were most likely those of their parents. Janet became very emotional and fell into a state of shock while Jeffrey almost collapsed to the ground. When criminalists entered the home, they noticed the temperature of the house was quite warm and the heater was on. They found the thermostat was set to 74 degrees, which is 23 degrees Celsius. One of the criminalists noted that they did not smell decomposition when entering the home, but one of them noted that they did notice the smell of human decomposition. They found the front door to have been locked and deadbolted from the inside, and it was one of the kinds of deadbolts that you needed a key to turn. The sliding glass door in the back was closed, but it was not locked. All of the windows were locked and all of the blinds and window coverings had been drawn. There was no indication of any forced entry into the home and according to the neighbor, Joseph Burke, he knew that it was normal for the DeVardos to keep their doors locked day and night. Downstairs, Marianne, as stated, was laying face down on the floor of the living room near a desk and a chair where the family computer was located. She was just a few feet from the front entrance of the home. The computer was turned off, as was the TV and the stereo, which were also located nearby in the living room. There was an entertainment center that had some VHS tapes that had been pulled from a cabinet and thrown onto the floor. The computer desk had been rifled through, some of the drawers had been pulled open, and some of them had been completely removed from the desk and thrown onto the ground. Underneath Marianne's body was a large pool of her own blood that had soaked into the carpet. This blood had partially dried. Some of it that was underneath her body and deeper into the carpeting and padding was still damp. The sweater that Marianne had on was soaked with blood, and that also was still damp. Don's body was in the laundry room next to the washer and dryer. His head was pressed up against the wall. His feet were pointed in the direction of the door that led into the hallway. The cabinets in the laundry room had been opened and appeared to have been ransacked. There were also two buckets of firewood on the floor in the laundry room. All of the drawers, cabinets, and cupboards in the kitchen had been opened and pulled out. Based on the state of some of the things in the kitchen, it appeared as though this crime scene had been sitting there for quite a long time. For example, there was a burner plate from the stove sitting in some water with a scrub brush in the sink. The water and the grease or the residue from the burner ring had come off and been soaked into the water and it had left a ring around the walls of the sink. The coffee pot was unplugged. There were two coffee mugs next to the pot and mold had formed on the coffee that was left in both the glass carafe and on the coffee that was left in the two mugs. There were also no kitchen towels anywhere in the kitchen. The doors and drawers on a liquor cabinet had been opened and pulled out. Located on the hutch of the cabinet were two wristwatches a man's and a woman's. In a bedroom located on the first floor of the house, 
There were papers and file folders strewn about the floor, as well as some camera equipment on the floor next to the bed. There was a dresser that had been tipped over and was leaning against the bed, and it had its drawers open too. Inside a partially open closet, deputies observed a rifle leaning against the wall. A wall clock had fallen off onto the ground, and it was stopped because the second hand was bent. The time on that clock was 10.25. There were no lights turned on anywhere downstairs, but there was a living room light that was on a timer. So what that meant is that the neighbors across the street may have seen the lights on and the lights off at different times during the day or at night. More noticeably at night, of course, because they would have seen that and thought that maybe somebody was home. All of the clocks in the house were one hour behind because daylight savings time had started that Sunday, April 4th, meaning the DeVardos were not alive to set them to the correct time. On the second level of the home, there were lights on in the hallway and in the stairway. A linen closet in the upstairs hall had its doors all opened and the items had been pulled out and thrown onto the ground. In one of the upstairs bedrooms, there were storage boxes and suitcases on the bed and on the floor. In another upstairs room, there was a filing cabinet and all of its drawers had been pulled out. The master bedroom was ransacked. Clothes and shoes had been scattered all over the floor. The dresser drawers had each been pulled out and placed on the floor and stacked one on top of the other. The nightstand drawers were also pulled open. One of the drawers of the dresser contained a coin collection and jewelry boxes that had been left untouched. All of the cabinets and drawers in the master bedroom had been opened and pulled out. A wadded up kitchen towel was found in the sink of the master bedroom. It would be the DeVardo's daughter Janet who would later report that the towel came from the kitchen and was never used or placed in the upstairs bathroom or in any bathroom of the house by either her mom or her dad. This towel was crumpled, it was stiff, and it was stained with blood, meaning that it had been wet at some point and left to dry in the wadded up matter in which it was found. The blood on the towel was collected and tested for DNA, and it did not match the DNA of either Don or Marianne. Fingerprints that were collected at the scene were either found to belong to the victims or were otherwise inconclusive. It did not take long for crime scene investigators to reach the conclusion that the scene at the DeVardo's home was staged. There was no indication that this was a burglary gone bad. Nothing of value that would have normally been taken by burglars was taken. The only things that were missing from the scene were Don's wallet and Marianne's purse. Both of those items contained various credit cards and nobody had attempted to use any of them anywhere and there was no sign of forced entry into the house. A thing that was going to become a point of contention in this case was the determination of when exactly it was the DeVardos were murdered. Being able to determine the time of death can make a difference when it comes to who becomes a person of interest, who becomes a suspect, and who is eliminated as having anything to do with it. There are plenty of cases where the time someone died and the very few minutes before and after that person's death can make or break a case. While there are other cases 
where even the day that somebody died can't even be determined because too much time had passed between when the person died and when their bodies or their remains were discovered. It is in those cases that circumstantial evidence must be used in order for investigators to narrow down the timeline as much as possible. This enables them to either include suspects or exclude them. And that is precisely what they were going to have to do here in the case of the DeVardos. And all of this has to do with the initial findings of the crime scene investigators who didn't seem to notice any advanced stages of decomposition or the odor of decomposition. Because if you recall, the last time the neighbors saw either one of the DeVardos alive was a week before their bodies were discovered. And based on the impressions that we got from the reports of those who first responded to the scene, it didn't seem like there were the usual indications of bodies that had been dead and decomposing for a week. I'm not an expert at all on this sort of stuff, nor do I wish or aspire to be. But you know, we've had cases where bodies have been found after having been dead for a couple of days. And when they were discovered, the person who found the body almost always points out how hard they were hit by the unmistakable stench of human decomposition. That just did not seem to happen here with the DeVardos. And there might be all sorts of reasons, theories, and explanations as to why that is. But like I said, no desire, nor do I aspire. Because of that, the circumstances surrounding the DeVardos and their day-to-day -day lives was going to have to be used to make the case as to when their last day alive actually was. Through the investigation, it was learned that Don and Marianne typically woke up by 7 in the morning. They both accessed their email accounts for the last time at 7.05 a.m. Neighbor Joseph Burke reported that the DeVardos picked up their newspaper and their mail from their post office box every day at 11.30 a.m. I'm not exactly sure how their system worked, but it sounded like their community had a centralized place for their newspapers and their mail to be delivered and the residents would go there to pick up their stuff. When investigators checked the contents of the DeVardo's post office box, they found mail and newspapers dated from March 31st to the day that they went to go check that mailbox, which was April 7th, the day after the bodies were found. What this indicated to investigators was that on March 31st, the DeVardos never made it to their post office box, meaning that it was likely they were dead by 11.30 a.m., the time that one or both of them would have gone to collect their mail and paper for the day. And if we take into consideration the clock that had been knocked off the wall, if that clock was knocked down as a result of a life or death struggle or as a part of the staging of the crime scene to make it look like a burglary, that clock was stopped at 10.25 due to that bent second hand. Of course, these analog clocks don't have AM or PM, so either this clock was knocked off the wall at 10.25 PM or 10.25 AM. And because we know that the DeVardos were up and looking at their email at 7.05 AM on March 31st, it can be inferred that this clock came down off the wall at 10.25 AM. And that lines up with them failing to appear at their post office box 
when they normally would have a little more than an hour later at 11.30 a.m. Remember, they did that every day. And people might think it's weird to go and check the mail every single day. I certainly don't do that. Sometimes I'll go a week or more without going to the mailbox. But if this is where the DeBardos also got their daily newspaper, then yeah. Especially when it comes to these elderlies and how they do things old school like read the paper. And the mail delivery person usually comes around on their route at the same time every single day. So yeah, this is totally a routine daily everyday thing. And it would be very unusual for the mail to go unchecked for even a day for the DeBardos. I know that way back when my dad was alive and he would get the Orange County Register seven days a week. If I ever pulled up to my parents' house anytime after 7 or 8 a.m. and saw the newspaper out on the driveway, I would automatically think that something was wrong. So the DeVardo's mail and newspapers were left untouched from March 31st on, nor did either one of them ever access their email accounts ever again after 7.05 a.m., that very same day. Another thing that lends to the notion that the DeVardos lay dead in their home for several days was the fact that there was a ring left by the standing water in the kitchen sink and the mold that had grown on the coffee in the pot and in the two coffee mugs next to it. I think that most of us would recognize what old stagnant water sitting in a sink would look like. But I don't know about any of you, the thought of the dirty stove ring sitting in old water in the sink kind of gives me some kind of anxiety. I don't like standing water anywhere in the house, but oh, my mother-in-law, ugh, she used to do stuff like that with the stove rings. And she used to leave like the mop sitting in the dirty mop bucket water for days, sometimes weeks. And I'm serious, she's the kind of lazy that will start a chore, but never really pull it off in the end. She'll like mop the floor and then leave the bucket and water sitting there in the middle of the room. She'll clean the stove and leave the range parts sitting in the sink for days. She'll vacuum a rug and then turn off the vacuum and leave it standing in the middle of the room still plugged in. I mean, have I driven your anxiety up a few notches yet? Should I keep going? She'll pour herself a cup of coffee, it will go cold, then she'll go and get a new cup of coffee, and it goes cold again, and she'll repeat this process for days and days and days. And how is it that she does this? Does not one run out of clean mugs at some point? Not if one claims to be a souvenir mug collector. Yeah, I totally have a theory that my mother-in-law buys mugs Anytime she travels anywhere, even if it's just to go to the gas station up the street, in order to maintain this lazy coffee drinking habit. Yeah, she's a mug collector. And yeah, I did air quotes with that. But I digress. And I googled it. It takes four to seven days for mold to start growing on the top of coffee that's been left sitting at room temperature. A phenomenon, by the way, I never even knew happened to coffee until I got the mother-in-law, who apparently liked to do these types of scientific experiments around her house. What this means for the DeVardos is that they hadn't touched their coffee pot or their coffee mugs for at least four days, 
and if it had been seven days before their bodies were found, it was likely there was a pretty big mold blob floating at the top of their coffee. According to the autopsy conducted on Don DeVardo, he suffered approximately 14 to 15 stab wounds to the neck, chest, and abdomen, causing death within a matter of minutes of the onset of the attack. One of the stab wounds severed his aorta, the main artery that carries blood away from the heart to the rest of the body, and that wound would be absolutely fatal. Don also suffered several wounds to his hands, which were determined to be defensive wounds as he attempted to fend off this attack. It appeared that the weapon used to stab him was a single-edged bladed instrument that was between 3 and 4 inches long, or 7 to 9 centimeters. Marianne suffered both stab wounds, slashing wounds, and blunt force injuries, and was also dead within a matter of minutes of the onset of the attack. Her throat was slit, and both her carotid artery and jugular vein were severed. Either one of those injuries would have also been absolutely fatal. It was determined that the wound to the throat was inflicted from front to back while she was laying on the ground. The stab and slashing wounds to her head were administered with such force that indentations were left in her skull. It was also determined that several of those head wounds were inflicted post-mortem. Marianne also sustained fractured ribs on both sides of her chest, an indication that it was possible that the weight of a person's knee was being pressed into her back as she was laying face down on the ground. Marianne suffered blunt force trauma injuries to both eyes and to her forehead, as well as one defensive wound on her right hand. The contents of both Marianne and Donald's stomach indicated that they had had a meal within a few hours prior to their deaths. However, the forensic pathologist was unable to determine their exact time of death. According to the report, the time of death became increasingly difficult to determine with the passage of time. Factors such as temperature and humidity could have had an effect on the decomposition process. It was able to be determined that both Don and Marianne had decomposed to the same extent, meaning they were killed around the same time. Photographs and diagrams of the DeVardo crime scene were analyzed by FBI forensic expert Mark Safarek. He also visited the crime scene in person. He looked at the autopsy photos, evidence analyses, and examined the layout of the home and the location of the bodies. Agent Safarik specialized in the analysis of crime scenes that are very unusual or exceptionally violent, or those involving a tremendous amount of interaction between the victim and the offender. He was also trained in taking into consideration the behaviors at the scene of a violent crime and to make certain determinations regarding the personality characteristics as to those specific behaviors in order to develop a profile of the offender. In addition to all of this, Safarik had been involved in more than 3,000 homicides when he was called upon to examine Marianne and Don's murders. And he arrived at some conclusions about the DeVardo case. 
Firstly, Agent Saverick determined the victimology. Why or how the Dubardos came to be the victims of a crime as violent as this? Because they were older and retired, they lived on a cul-de-sac in a remote area that had a very low crime rate, and because they were found to be very security conscious, there were no signs of any forced entry either. Safarik opined that the Devardos were familiar with their killer and allowed him into the house. Based on his analysis of the crime scene and because of the nature and direction of Marianne's neck wound, he determined that Marianne was sitting at her desk and was attacked from behind and had little to no time to react until it was too late. It appeared as if she had been grabbed from behind and thrown down onto the floor. Because her ribs were fractured, Safarik believed that her killer landed on top of her with a lot of force, and she only had one defensive wound to her right hand, so clearly she was taken by surprise. Dawn, on the other hand, Safarik found, would have been attacked from the front because all of his wounds were to the front of his body and he had numerous defensive wounds to both hands and wrists. Safrick believed Marianne to have been attacked first, because if Don had been attacked first, Marianne would not have been sitting quietly and unsuspectingly at her computer desk. After Marianne was attacked, it is believed that Don entered the home from the garage, and it was possible that he was bringing those buckets of firewood into the house from outside, right before he was confronted by his killer. But Safrik did emphasize that it's really impossible to know the exact sequence of events, but this is what he believed to be most likely based on his analysis, that Don was confronted by his killer while he set down the firewood in the laundry room and that he walked in the door and it's possible that he saw Marianne lying on the floor. He abruptly set those buckets down because they didn't belong in the laundry room. At that point, Don almost immediately perceived the threat as he was being approached by the killer and he began backing up back into the laundry room and there was no other place for him to retreat. And from there, he was trapped as the offender began to attack him from the front. Safrick agreed with what the Sheriff's Department crime scene investigators believed that the scene was staged to appear to be a robbery. It was easy to see past this attempt at staging since there were various valuable pieces of property that could have easily been taken along with the wallet and the purse that was actually missing. Uh, many things of value were left behind. The ransacking was also what Safarik described as excessive. There were drawers and cabinets ransacked that burglars typically do not search through because homeowners usually don't keep valuables in those locations. And I'm sure all of you listening immediately recognize that when I went through the list of cabinets and drawers that were opened or pulled out. Burglars are not going to be looking for valuables in the kitchen cupboard unless they're looking to add to their ridiculously large souvenir coffee mug collection. That being said, this led Safarik to come to the conclusion that the motive for this crime was not motivated by burglary or financial gain. It was his belief that a random stranger would not go through the trouble of staging the scene to appear to be like a burglary, stating, quote, When you see a staged crime scene, it is an attempt by the offender 
to misdirect law enforcement into another direction. That's because the offender perceives that they, they being the offender, will be the focus of a law enforcement investigation. In other words, if we accept that the motive of this crime was to kill Don and Marianne DeVardo, and the killer was someone known to the victims and or close to the family, then they likely have it in their mind that if they don't make this look like a random residential burglary, then the offender is going to come under suspicion. If investigators believe that the crime is a burglary gone bad, carried out by some random anonymous criminals, then they're not going to be looking at the people close to the family. The idea is only a person that the victims are very familiar with would bother staging the crime scene in order to deflect attention away from them. Because the DeVardos were killed with such ferocity, purely based on the number of stab, slashing, and blunt force wounds inflicted on both victims, Safrick believed that the person who did this was furious at the DeVardos, lending to the notion that this crime again was carried out by someone who knew them. This killing was very personal. And with that, the DeVardos would be the very first double homicide in the history of Clear Lake. Agent Safarak also arrived at the opinion that Don and Marianne were killed sometime between 7.30 and 10.25 on the morning of Wednesday, March 31st. He arrived at that conclusion based on the circumstantial evidence that we have already gone over. This is the time frame between the last time the DeVardos were known to have checked their email and the time that was displayed on the damaged clock found on the ground. And also, the time of the murders was narrowed down based on what is known of the DeVardos' pretty regular habits and schedule. They usually woke up around 7 a.m. Because there was coffee made, then that indicated that they at least made it downstairs to do that but they never made it to their post office box to get their mail or their newspaper, which was a task that would have been completed by 11.30 a.m. as the mail and papers had started to pile up beginning on March 31st. If you remember earlier, I mentioned that at the time the bodies were discovered and the house had been corned off with crime scene tape, Purely by sad coincidence and chance, Janet DeVardo, Don and Marianne's oldest of their three kids, had made plans in advance to fly up to visit her mom and dad on that day, April 6th, the day their bodies were discovered. When Janet spoke to investigators, she reported that it had been more than a year since she had spoken to her younger brother, Jeffrey. And if you remember, when Janet arrived at her parents' house that day and discovered that, she was, that they were dead, she got there with Jeffrey. The plan for Jeffrey to be there kind of came up at the last minute. Janet told investigators that she last spoke to her parents on Monday, March 29th. That was the last time. Janet called her parents several times between March 29th and April 6th, but hung up almost every time without leaving a voicemail message. Janet did leave a message on Saturday, April 3rd, but they never returned her call. She tried calling them again the following day, which was Sunday, April 4th, which was also Easter Sunday, but again, Janet was unable to reach either one of them. The next day, Monday, April 5th, Janet contacted the Lake County Sheriff's Office and requested a welfare check to be conducted at her parents' house. 
A deputy paid a visit to the house as requested. He knocked on the door but got no response. But the deputy didn't notice anything suspicious, just like the neighbor hadn't, and left the property. So like I said, Janet, who lived in Southern California, was scheduled to fly up to Northern California to visit her parents that day, Tuesday, April 6th. Her brother Jeffrey had been contacting her in the days leading up to her visit to her parents' house. On the evening of March 31st, that would have been the last day the DeVardos were actually seen that morning when neighbor Joseph Burke and his wife left for the day. That was two days after Janet had last spoken to them by phone. Jeffrey left Janet a message on her answering machine that evening of March 31st. Remember, she had said that it had been more than a year since she had spoken to her younger brother. In his message, he told her that he would call her back the next day. On April 1st, Jeffrey did, in fact, call Janet back. During that conversation, he told her that he had learned from their parents about her upcoming trip to visit them, and he wanted to know if he could go along with her. He said that he would meet her when her plane landed at the Sacramento airport. Jeffrey further suggested that they not tell their parents that he was coming along to kind of make it a nice surprise for them. Janet agreed to the plan, and on April 6th, she flew into the Sacramento airport where she was met by Jeffrey. From the airport, they drove together to their parents' house. During that car ride, Janet did not mention to Jeffrey that she had been unable to get a hold of their parents. It was when they arrived at their parents' house and saw all the police activity and crime scene tape that they found out that their parents were deceased. Janet was able to provide some details about the state of her parents' home and what would have been out of the ordinary. She said that her mom always kept the house neat, orderly, and clutter-free. None of the things that were strewn about the floors of the bedrooms, bathrooms, linen closets, or cabinets would have been out and all over the place like they were. There was always a kitchen towel in the kitchen, and it would have never been brought upstairs to that bathroom for any reason. Her parents always had the thermostat set at 68. They would have never had it any higher to what it was set at when investigators found it. And they would have always had their back sliding glass door secured with a wooden dowel placed into the track for the added security. And not only was a sliding glass door secured with the lock and wooden dowels, all the windows were as well. The front door was dead bolted. So all this confirmed is that this wasn't a break-in by any burglars. It is believed that the person who killed Don and Marianne were let into the home by the couple, meaning it must have been somebody that they knew, someone close to them, someone in their inner circle, which meant investigators needed to look at the DeVardo children. So we've brought up the kitchen towel being in the upstairs bathroom a couple of times by now. So you've probably guessed that it was an important piece of evidence. And if you did, you were right. The towel did not belong up there. It had been wet, but by the time it was collected, it was dried and it was bloody. There weren't a whole lot of reasons why that towel would have been up in that bathroom. It was way too much blood, say, if Don had been shaving and nicked his face. That can usually be solved with a small wad of tissue or toilet paper, right? 
and it is unlikely that either of the DeBardos would have brought that towel from the downstairs area. It was bloodied and they were killed downstairs. All the blood was down there. So the next logical thought is that the killer was the one who brought that towel up there and used it to wash and clean his hands. The towel was collected and sent to the lab for DNA testing. Other than the towel, there was very little in the way of evidence that would have been able to point to or identify the person responsible for Don and Marianne's murders. In the meantime, and getting back to Janet and Jeffrey DeVardo, for them to have suddenly showed up at the scene of the crime just as investigators were in the midst of processing the house for evidence, it was just a bit too much of a coincidence. So that right there had investigators interested in talking to the two of them. What were the chances that these two kids of the two murder victims who lived hundreds of miles away all the way down in Southern California and neither Janet nor Jeffrey lived anywhere near each other either, yet all of a sudden they just showed up out of the blue right when the bodies of their parents were being discovered. We kind of already know that it was somewhat of a coincidence because it was the neighbor, Joseph Burke, who also just happened to wait until that very day to step inside the DeVardo home to make the terrible discovery in the first place. So yes, for once, it was kind of a coincidence. Janet, of course, had this trip planned for quite some time. And Jeffrey, you know, he sort of asked to tag along at the last minute. So what does that mean? Perhaps him asking to come along might not be as coincidental. We'll just have to wait and see. And dreamers, I'm going to go ahead and pause this episode here and divide this up into two parts because it is becoming longer than I anticipated it being. I appreciate you all so much for waiting for this episode. I know it took me some time to get it out there, but the good news is, is that I'm almost done with the second half of this. I was trying to finish it in order to get this out for you this weekend, but it was just reaching a point where it was going to go past two hours long. So it's just better if I split it into two parts. And because it really is almost completed, you're not going to have to wait too long for the second part, maybe just a couple of days. But anyway, when we come back, we are going to pick up the story with the police beginning their investigation by speaking to the children of the slain couple. And we will see what they learn as they will be digging up some family drama. All right. I want to thank you all so much for listening. Check back real soon for the second part of this. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>